Hello, and welcome to Every Moment is a Choice. I'm your host, Erica Behel, and I invite you to join me on a transformative journey to uncover the extraordinary potential that lies within every single moment of our lives. From the choices we make in our relationships, careers, and personal growth, to the mindset we embrace in the face of adversity, this podcast will empower you to embrace the notion that every moment holds a choice, and it's up to us to seize it. Join me as we engage in insightful conversations with thought leaders, experts, and everyday people who have harnessed the power of choice to achieve greatness, overcome obstacles, and create extraordinary lives. If you feel inspired by this episode, please read it and consider subscribing. I'm keen to know how it's impacted you. Today, I'm elated to have Kamil Hack on the podcast, but I want to start a little bit different today. I'd like to invite you, the listener, to do a short breathing exercise with us. It's easy and will take no more than 30 seconds. So wherever you're listening to this, let's do this together. The breathing exercise is going to be four counts inhale, seven counts hold, as in holding your breath, and eight counts exhale. So we'll do it two times. I'm going to count for you. Okay? Ready. Inhale, two, three, four. Hold, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Exhale, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Inhale, one, two, three, four. Hold, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Exhale, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. What we just did is called four, seven, eight breathing. And it's one of the first things you learn in the Hack method of acting. My guest, Kamil Hack, is the founder and artistic director of his own acting school, the Hack Center of Acting and Creativity, HCAC for short, as well as his own production company, Method Productions. Kamil was born and bred in Singapore. And like many young aspiring actors, he packed up and went to Los Angeles at 22. He started as a student at the Lee Strasberg Theater and Film Institute before going on to become the youngest and first Asian to teach at the Institute. This is the same institution, by the way, where actors like Sally Field, Harvey Keitel, John Voigt, and his daughter honed their craft. Kamel also graduated top of his class at the American Musical and Dramatic Academy and was the first student in its 50-year history to graduate with honors in acting. So Singaporean, by the way. As Asia's only experienced teacher of the Lee Strasberg method of acting, Kamil has derived his own method called the Hack method that he also teaches. Over 10 years running HCAC, Kamil has coached over 10,000 students some of whom have gone on to appear in award-winning Hollywood films, stage productions, television shows, and commercials around the world. Most of those students, though, are not full-time professional actors. They are corporate employees with a dream to do improv on the weekends. They are creative double-lifers. They are TEDx speakers. They are startup founders pitching to venture capitalists for the first time. They are people with a story to tell who don't yet know how to tell it. That's why this discussion is not only about acting today. This applies to everyone in life. Because if you don't tell your own story, someone else will. Let's dive in. Welcome, Kamil. Hi, Erica. Thanks for being with us today. So my first question, uh, the Huck method of acting starts with a workshop called Know Thyself. What does knowing yourself have to do with acting? I think there are a lot of uh, misconceptions as to what acting is to the layman. And if you were to ask someone how they would define it, very often they might mistake it with uh, pretending or, or lying or being someone else. And are there crossovers with those things? Yes. However, the, the root 
of acting is really about truthful behavior and being as truthful as you can, whether it's you being yourself or you portraying someone else in imaginary circumstances. And in order to be truthful or the buzzword in the corporate space, authentic, mm-hmm. um, one really needs to have a full understanding of oneself and one's abilities and the instrument that you have. And when I say instrument, I mean your physical self, your intellectual self, your spiritual self, uh, your psychological self, so that you know how to tune it to play the different roles that you have in your personal life, professional life, creative life. So it always starts with know thyself. And it's something that you'd think people, that would come naturally to most people. But in fact, I think it's really useful for people to understand how do you come to know yourself? Like, what are some of the things that that someone explores in that first workshop? Well, one of the, the main things that we begin to uh, understand with, with acting is, and, and, and the, this very introductory level is that we already act on a daily basis and we play different roles on a daily basis. Um, you're someone's mother, someone's sister, someone's partner, uh, and so on and so forth. How do you adjust yourself and be the most truthful, authentic, best version of yourself in that transaction. So in this introductory level, we're examining the different transactions we have in our life and we are beginning to understand here's where I am now and maybe here's where I want to be and what are the gaps in between, what are the creative gaps and what are the things that I can put into practice so I can close that creative gap, as Ira Glass calls it, to be the best version of myself in that transaction. So I'm learning things like, how do I, where do I put my focus and concentration? How do I observe myself and the world around me better? How do I begin to be comfortable being vulnerable, both in private and also in public? How do I give myself permission to be myself versus the presupposed version that people expect me to be? These are just some of the things that one is taught at this very introductory stage of knowing thyself. Mm. And I have to admit for the listeners, I went through this workshop. So last year I signed up for two of the Hawk Method workshops at HCAC. And I'm a person, no one would associate with me with method acting. Trust me. I'm rational. I was very corporate. I was, I was lots of things, but you know, what I found is that in this workshop were people from all walks of life, people who are aspiring to be um, paid as as professional actors, people who never had really any intention of acting, but were interested in, like you said, understanding themselves better and being able to, I guess, be more authentic Mm. in how they come across. One of the things you said there, um, you mentioned transactions. Mm. And I remember one of the things you stress in the course is that everything happens in transaction. Mm. Can you explain that a little bit more? Whether we realize it or not, we're constantly transacting with the world around us. And when I say transacting, if I were to boil it down into the different types of transactions that exist, there are uh, at least four different types that that I can rattle off. Uh, One is verbal transactions. Like right now, I'm talking to you. So that's just Mm -hmm. a verbal thing. Nonverbal, your viewers can't see it, but I have an Italian habit with my hands. I constantly (laughs) talk with my hands. Uh, and then conscious, I'm consciously explaining to you what uh, transactions are, the concept of transactions. And then there are uh, the most insidious one of them all, which is the unconscious, unconscious transactions that we make, which are um, sometimes we call them uh, ticks and uh, uh, leakages in the body, uh, areas where we hold tension. I noticed that as soon as I said that, all of a sudden you adjusted your spine just to like, oh my gosh, am I, you know, am I holding my spine upright? You're right. Um, And there are things that we do that we may not be aware of that end up uh, unconsciously corrupting or or diluting the message or the power of our story. And so how can we begin to be aware of these transactions that we have in our personal life, in our professional life, so that we can begin to um, minimize where the leakages happen and then maximize that same energy that goes into a leak into the telling or the sharing of the story. Mm. So it sounds like it's a consciousness of where your energy is, where your presence is, mm, mm. so that you're able to direct that Absolutely. or focus it. Absolutely. Because it's all just energy, really. Yeah. yeah. We are all energy. Correct. 
Interesting. So you have a lot of, you know, you've, you've worked with 10,000 students. Mm. Why do you think people come to you, you know, apart from the ones who actually want to become professional actors, but it seems like there are people who struggle to tell their stories. They know kind of who they are, but they, they struggle to tell that story. Do you think they come to you? I certainly came to you. Mm. I'm giving myself away. Mm. Uh, as to my motivation for for coming to HCAC, but why do you think people struggle to tell their own stories? Why do people struggle to tell their own stories? Um, you know, if if I were to boil it down to a couple different factors, I I reckon the most frequent one that I see is the lack of permission that one has in one's life, and that could be external permission from the various circles of influence that one might have in one's life, be it one's uh, workplace or family or support system. Um, that's the external permissions. And then also there's uh, the internal permissions, like my story is not good enough. I'm not worthy enough to tell a story. I don't have the ability to tell a story. If I told a story, who on earth would want to listen to my story? Mm-hmm. There's all sorts of these internal uh, imposter syndrome things that happen. And so it is knowing that when you come to me to work with me, that I'm going to remind you that you've always had this permission. And if you didn't think you had this permission, then I'm going to say, well, if you didn't know you have it, now I'm consciously telling you, you have the space and you have the resources and you definitely have the outright permission to speak your truth to power, whatever that means to you. And this will be a censorship free space, uh, to express whatever it is that you feel you need to get off your chest. I mean, I might ask you, like, you know, what? why did you feel that you could tell your story with me? With you? Yeah. I agree that you made a safe space. It felt, it wasn't the only, the physical studio, which also felt very cozy and very almost private in a way where we were with a group of people, as long as we all agreed that we were all going to be vulnerable with each other, Mm. there was no one going to barge in and disrupt that. Mm. So I felt that it was a, a kind of sense of safety once you walked in the room and that was created by you, by the other, I think the other students Mm. also created that. Am I right? Yeah. Is that, is yeah, 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 sure, sure, sure. <laughs> I mean, no right or wrong here, right? I mean, but, you know, so, okay, so you you walked in, you felt, okay, this feels like a safe space. Mm-hmm. Was that the only reason why you felt, okay, I could tell my story here or explore my story here? I think it was because other people were being vulnerable as well. Mm. And once I saw other people doing that, I was able to open up myself. Mm. But... As you know, when I worked on, so there was various projects that you work on as a student Mm. and I worked on a monologue that I that I wrote Mm. and I recall that I was, it was quite an emotional, personal monologue and I was practicing it and you might not remember the feedback you gave me, but I said, I think you said something, you're playing it safe. Mm. You know, you're not really showing what I think you want to show with this monologue. Mm -hmm. And so it took some exercises where we were very, um, I think you had to really endeavor to create a safe space for me to really let it out and know that it was just you and me in that room on that day Mm. and really let it out Mm. and then kind of harness some of that Mm. to bring to the actual performance. Mm. Mm. Which you did. Which I did. Yeah. Yes. On your own, mind you. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So I I felt like that was a a very um it went it went deep. And mm. I and I remember that another thing you said, I remember a lot of things you said. Um you mentioned, you know, after a performance, you should feel drained. Mm. Otherwise, it probably wasn't worth watching. Mm. And I can tell you that after I had no clue that I would feel so drained after, you know, like a five minute monologue. Yeah or even less than five minutes, maybe three minutes. But it was an emotional draining experience Mm. to show that. And so, I mean, what do you mean by that when you say that you should feel exhausted by the end of a performance? So we go back to the idea of you are your own instrument Mm -hmm. and you are made of these different components that you can 
tuned to uh, tell whatever story that you want to tell. So as mentioned, there's the physical component, the intellectual component, the spiritual, emotional, psychological component. And whether you are literally sharing a true story from your life or you are advocating on behalf of an imaginary character, mm -hmm. it requires a level of uh, will. It requires a level of putting your own ego and your own self-consciousness aside. It requires a level of transformation. It requires a level of shedding of, of whatever guards and walls that may exist. And in the doing of, of, this, of this act, whatever it may be, you are then drawing down on the resources that you have to play with, which is your physical, mental, spiritual, and so on and so forth. And so if you have really invested in your preparation, then in the working of the story and just after, you will ideally feel physically, mentally, spiritually drained in some capacity. Mm -hmm. um, and as well, you should, because then it showed that you cared enough to prepare it to yeah. the degree that it needed to be prepared. And you cared enough to deliver it in the way that you felt proud of the work that you did. And you felt that I put everything and myself on the line for this, whatever, three minute thing that I did. And if you like it, great. If you don't, that's also okay. But I know that I can look at myself in the mirror and know I could not have done any better. And so all of that uh, force of nature that one exerts within that two minutes, three minutes requires energy. And I think this is where I, I put the, the caveat disclaimer thing of knowing the difference between when your work must cost you something and when your work hurts and your work should never, and I use should very rarely should never hurt you because mm -hmm. if you're hurting, then you're no good to yourself, let alone to your community. Yeah. Right. How do we, how do we understand the resources so that we can work with them and then also recharge them without feeling pain, stress, burnout. I need to take a year long sabbatical or I'll never come back to this room again. I don't care how safe you made it. <laughs> All of those things, and then it was pointless, right? Um, you want to be able to do the work, recharge, and come back again. Yeah. It's a lesson I've had to learn. And in not even in an acting context, but I think it was something I took away from HCAC was that the work should not hurt. And coming off a corporate career where I was burned out mm. and stressed, and now starting my own business, I made that commitment to myself of it shouldn't. I shouldn't just be heading for another burnout mm. as a result of this. What mm. are the boundaries that I need to set? Mm. What are the, the kind of uh, self-care that I need to take care of to mm. ensure that I work hard mm. and I'm proud of what I put out there, but it's not going to drain me to the extent that it's hurting me. Mm, absolutely. So such a, such a critical lesson, I think, for most people to learn. Yeah, even myself. Yeah, absolutely. I'm constantly mm. having to remind myself of how do I maintain really, really active boundaries in my personal life, you know, because when you love what you do, very often it, it bleeds into your personal life, but it also bleeds into your personal time. And then like, wait a minute, I thought I was meeting for coffee. How did this end up being a coaching session? That's not what this was meant to be. Yeah. And then that's not looking after yourself. Um, yeah. So I've had to learn that over time, the being comfortable with saying, no, I'm not going to meet you today. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And is that how, that how you've learned it is just by setting those boundaries around your time or are there any other techniques that you've learned to kind of maintain your sense of? Um, you know, I've had to learn it the hard way um, mm -hmm. simply because as strange as this sounds and as inclusive as the performing arts may be, it not till um, maybe three to five years ago, I'm going to say around the time of the Me Too movement, actually, mm -hmm. for some, I don't know what the correlation is there. <laughs> Did self-care and self-soothing and practicing active boundaries become a more active conversation in, in, in the day-to-day? -day? And even now, if one were to, to Google uh, or look up how does one practice active boundary making within, uh, within the performing arts and creative arts, there's really not a lot of work out there that teaches you how to do these things. And so for myself, I've had to allow myself to be hurt um, or not allow myself. I've had, I've hurt myself. I've had to hurt others. I've had to uh, have my boundaries be crossed many times. I've had to feel pain and stress and burnout 
enough time to recognize where I needed to draw the line. And even then, sometimes I'm still not that great at it. Um, and I'm fortunate that I have at least one or two, can I say the word bullshit alarms? I, I don't know if this is like a family-friendly podcast. I've got enough bullshit alarms in my life that now tell me, come here, doing it again. Like, oh, fine. I'll, okay, fine. I'll, I'll, I'll active boundaries. Got it, got it, got it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm thinking as you're saying that, I'm thinking back to, because I knew nothing about acting before I started with your um, with your school. Mm. And when people just laymen hear about method acting, mm. they think about like Daniel Day-Lewis yeah. or these people who kind of immerse themselves in their roles. And it seems like there's no boundaries there. Mm. I mean, mm. the stories you hear, which are maybe rumors, maybe mm. not, um, of people almost going crazy mm. because they're so immersed in certain roles. Mm. I mean, do you think that's something inherent in, in method acting as well? Or? It's inherent in the misunderstanding and ignorance of it. And it's inherent in the clickbait marketing aspect of method acting, which is what it has mutated into. Mm. If you were to look at the originators of what is now termed method acting, at no point was it ever extolled that one must hurt oneself, one must yeah. be uh, you know, really difficult to work with on set. That being a method actor entitles you to uh, all sorts of insane behavior. It's not at all that it is essentially a methodical way of preparing so you can be as truthful as possible end of and you know like any i guess holy text one looks at that statement and goes well i wonder if i could also expand that definition to include xyz which oftentimes entails hurting yourself hurting other people being difficult to work with and all in the name of method acting um yeah and it's unfortunate that one now might associate the term with insane and unforgivable behavior when really there's so much more to it if you dig below the surface. Mm. So interesting. So let's go into method acting okay. because I I love your story. Your story is so interesting. So you moved to LA at a very young age mm-hmm. to study acting. Mm-hmm. So coming from Singapore, that's a big decision. And I'm not just talking about the flight. Yeah. Okay. Like there's a, I've been here for 11 years now, and I know that there are a lot of expectations on kids. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of things about what's right and what's wrong to do mm-hmm. um, for children and how they choose their path in life. Mm-hmm. So what drove you to actually move to L.A. at the time, and did you feel supported? What drove me to move to L.A.? I'll, I'll give you the, the, the TLDR version of it. Okay. Um, so... I got pulled into acting because of Robin Williams and Dead Poets Society. I got pulled into acting because of various mentors in my life. I got pulled into acting because I had nobody at home to look after me as a latchkey kid. I got pulled into acting because I desperately wanted love and attention from people because I wasn't getting it at home. And I found it through acting, but I found myself being a people pleaser and a shapeshifter. But I knew that that's what I wanted to do with acting. Mm. Um, that I wanted to entertain and I wanted to hold space for people. And it was only in my, um, just before I finished my time with uh, the Singapore Armed Forces that uh, I spoke to my very first mentor and she suggested that I consider training overseas. And she gave me a bunch of schools that I could have considered and I was uh, so overwhelmed by the options that she gave me and the fact that she also offered me a job to teach at her school Mm. um, at the age of 21 that I had forgotten all of these options. And when I went home to sort of look it up uh, uh, on the interwebs of things, all I could remember was uh, she mentioned a school that sounded a lot like a French football team. So I typed in (laughs) Strasbourg acting? question mark and then google said did you mean lee strasberg acting i was like well yes google i meant that and and then i clicked on the website not knowing anything about this man and this methodology and a lot of his alumni as you had mentioned are people that i had greatly admired and respected you know along with your pacinos and your de niro's and your marilyn monroe's and your james deans i was like oh i like their films i like their work i should probably go there and because i had been a latchkey kid but i had also come from some level of socioeconomic privilege, my parents were like, listen, as long as you like what you're doing and you 
stay out of our hair and you keep yourself gainfully occupied. We'll support whatever crazy business you want to do over there, okay. uh, which is good enough for me. And I'm yeah. fully aware that I'm in the very, very small minority of being uh, fully supported from a young age to have consistent feet always dipped into the performing arts. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So what about, you said you you Googled Strasbourg, you found the Lee Strasbourg school. Mm. What about that method worked for you? Did you try any other methods or, or kind of uh, dip your toes around? I did. I did. So what had happened was, again, I, without doing any research other than looking at the really, really famous alumni, I went to the school site and scene and it was in truth and in retrospect, the first real actor training that I had, because prior to that, it was all um, voice and speech. And um, there's a really famous uh, voice teacher. Her name is Patsy Rodenberg, and she calls it the teeth and tits of acting, which is stand here, say it this way, and everybody will love you, um, which is what I had been grounded in. And going to... Uh, the Strasbourg School, they weaned me off of that. And with any conservatory program, they'll break you down before they build you in their image. But part of breaking you down is helping you understand what is the root essence of Kamil? What does Kamil really want to say? How does he really want to say it? Mm. What are the impulses that Kamil has that he can now, with the space that we provide him, follow through with no consequences? And it was the first time that I felt I didn't have to shapeshift I didn't have to people please. It was the first time that I found, oh, I really just have to please myself and be proud of my own work. It was the first time that I was given tools and skills to examine how to create work that was truthful, that was authentic. It was the first time that I had people who looked like me, uh, because your viewers might not know what I look like, but I don't look or nor, I guess I don't sound like your average Singaporean. And so in a city where there are other uh, olive-toned folks like me with facial hair who in a post-9-11 America, they go, ah, you look like one of us. Yeah. Um, all of these factors allowed me to examine who Kamil was, who Kamil is, who Kamil wanted to be, and what sort of work Kamil wanted to put out into the world. That's what, that's what they gave me. I think that's so beautiful. And I find it so ironic that you say it was at an acting school where you learned you didn't have to shapeshift anymore. Mm. Mm -hmm. There's a massive irony in, in that. Yeah. Because everyone would think that's where you learn how to shapeshift. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's so cool. I love that. So what about his method um, really resonated with you? Why, why did you kind of embrace the Lee Strasberg method? So while, while Strasberg formed the, the main trunk of the, the techniques that I was exposed to, I had learned other methodologies and I cherry-picked what worked and what didn't work. And I didn't really find enough resonance with other methodologies because where I, I felt that I was most connected to Strasbourg's work was in the idea of the shedding of stuff, mm. where, again, it's sort of related to the know thyself uh, aspect where we carry a lot of unnecessary tension physical, mental, spiritual tension that inhibits us or prevents us from putting work out that is truthful, real, authentic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And his work was predicated on the simple things of, first, can you just shed unnecessary tension? Second, can you, um, I guess, in the corporate space, we call it being mindful, which is, can I reconnect to my five senses, my creative muscles, mm -hmm. right? Can I really be aware of what something sounds like, tastes like, feels like, smells like, sounds like? Can I be aware of how that impacts me? Can I be aware of how I can work with those creative muscles, the sensorial muscles to uh, form characters, to form stories? It all boiled down to seemingly really, really simple things, which is, mm -hmm. can I relax? Can I use my five senses? Which is like, to the average person, it's like, oh, that's acting school? I'm like, oh, yeah, buddy, go ahead, you try it. And you realize how much unnecessary tension we carry yeah. and how disconnected we are from our own bodies and, and senses. Um, and th that's what really drew me to his work, the shedding of and the 
and the being before the doing. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. So you actually broke barriers in Hollywood and specifically in method acting, becoming the first Asian and the youngest student to teach at the Institute. At the time, were you aware of the, the firsts that you were accomplishing and did that drive you in a way? I love how when you introduced me in the bio, you're like, oh, that's so Singaporean of you. Uh, my parents would be so proud if they heard that introduction <laughs> because I constantly tell people that I'm a proud failure of the Singapore education system because I didn't find my, my academic place in Singapore and I really only found it when I moved to the States. Mm-hmm. And in this idea of being the first of anything, totally did not dawn upon me. I think what had happened was because my mentor had given me a job in Singapore and I worked for about a year um, teaching special needs kids, speech and drama, and just basic life skills. And it was at a preschool. So I was there Monday through Saturday. And by the end of the year, I was like, oh, I know everything about teaching. Yeah. And I arrive in LA and it's January 3rd, 2005. And I'm there for the big tour before school opens one week later. Mm -hmm. So the administrator takes me around the school and then she says, okay, now we come back to the office. Um, here's the class schedule. You need to pick some classes. And I look at the schedule and uh, her name was Odette. And I take the paper and I'm like, uh, no, Odette, I, I, I don't want to pick classes. And she's like, huh? Hmm. Um, no, no, maybe you don't understand me. Uh, classes start next week. You need to pick classes. It's like, no, no, no. I understand you perfectly well. I'm just, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not picking classes. And then she's like, oh, but you flew all the way here. You don't want to do the classes anymore. And I'm like, uh, Oh, no, no, I still want to do the classes. But what I really want is I want to teach here. Mm. And she's like, huh? Excuse me, what? I'm like, I've taught one whole year in Singapore. (laughs) I want to teach here. What will it take for me to teach here? And then she's like, oh, no one's ever asked us that before. Well, I am. And I want to teach here. And then she's, we had this whole back and forth thing. And then uh, she basically knew that she was not going to get me out of the office or pick my classes until we had a compromise. And she said, listen, a, I cannot let you teach here, and that's because you don't know what we teach. Mm. I'm like, okay, fine, fair enough. Uh, but B, this program's really, really, really hard. So if you can even last the two-year program, then maybe we'll consider letting you teach. Is that good enough for you so mm. that you can pick some classes and get out of my office? I'm like, well, that's good enough for me. So uh, I picked my classes, and I, I carried on. And in my head, I already knew that I was coming into the school with the idea to learn not only what the techniques and the tools and the skills were, but how do I learn it in a way that I can also teach it? Mm -hmm. Um, Was I aware that I was the youngest that they'd ever hired later on uh, in the the program? No. Was I aware that they were the first Asian that they had hired? Absolutely not at all. It was only much later on where someone said, hey, are you aware of these things? I'm like, Mm -hmm. oh, well, okay. Yeah, it's not, it wasn't important to me. It was more important that I picked up how to teach. So interesting to me. So you you went from teaching in a preschool yeah. <laughs> to saying, I'm going to teach here. Yeah, to a bunch <laughs> of adults. <LA>. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I don't think we've explored that yet. Where did, where did the urge to teach? Because you could have just uh, started auditioning, mm. become an actor, mm. which is what maybe what most people do. Mm. Where did the urge to teach come from? Robin Williams, Dead Poets Society. Full circle. Full circle. It wow. Full circle, yeah. I just rewatched the film uh, this past weekend. Mm. And because I wanted to introduce my wife to it, she had never seen it. And she heard me talk about it again and again and again and again and how influential it was on my life. Mm-hmm. And she's like, well, we've got some time. Let's watch it tonight. And what, what drew me to the film was the fact that uh, I got my parents' attention by asking them questions about the film. Mm. And I'd never experienced that in my life. And it was only much later on that really what drew me to the film was how unorthodox Robin Williams' character was in the film, how charismatic he was in um, influencing his students, how much he held space for them, Mm -hmm. how much he gave them the permission to free their voice, free their talents. That was the stuff that uh, shifted something in me on a DNA level that I only realized in that year of teaching in 2004 with special needs kids. Mm -hmm. I was like, this is what I want to do. Wow. Interesting. Okay. I keep saying that interesting, but it is. 
So you, you were teaching in LA for a while, mm. but now you're back here in, here in Singapore mm. and you've had your HCAC school running for 10 years now. Mm. So what prompted the move back to Singapore to teach? The goal was always to come back to teach. The goal was always to create a space that didn't exist so that people like me or with similar ambitions to me or with similar backgrounds to me or people with less access than me could have the same opportunity that I had and the same platform that I experienced in LA. Uh, that was always the goal. I just didn't think I was going to come back this early. Mm. Uh, in my head, I'd always set, my, set it as I'll come back when I'm 45 and then that'll be my retire retirement plan. I came back by by accident at the age of 30 and, and I never looked back. Wow. Yeah. And so you went to work starting up the school as soon as you got back? Uh, yeah. Well, um, so this is where the, the accident happened. I, I mm -hmm. came back to start a, a film festival, um, the mm. first ever ASEAN film festival where all 10 nations came together with films and blah, 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 blah. And in putting together this, this ASEAN film festival, it opened up a lot of conversations and doors for me to the point that when the festival was done and it was held in, in Malaysia, I called up my buddy Raymond, who was house-sitting for me for about three months. And I said, hey, Raymond, um, first of all, happy April Fool's. But this is not April Fool's. I'm not coming back to LA. Can you sell my house and my car? Do you mind shipping me back some of my clothes and books? If you want my TV, you can have it. Whatever money you make from selling my furniture send some of it back. But if you really want it for the work that you're doing, I'd really appreciate it. I'm not coming back because I'm starting my school. Okay, thanks. Um, and he's like, say what? I'm like, I, you heard me. That I meant exactly what I said. And yeah. he's like, ah, this is a lot of work, but fine, I'll do it for you. And uh, that was April 1st of 2013. And I started the studio June 3rd of 2013. Wow, it's yeah. fast. Yeah. I mean, well, it's Singapore, right? You can start a business, you know, like, like that. Like 50 yeah. minutes. Yeah, exactly. Lovely. So when you were first getting it started, did you have kind of a ready market of people who wanted to study with you? Or did you have to kind of think, how do I attract aspiring actors or, or anybody into this school? The, the benefit of never having gone to uh, business school and being an eternal optimist and being full of youthful naivete is such that I did no competitive analysis uh, no understanding of the landscape whatsoever. I just knew I want to open a studio for actors. And that's that. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I literally just put word out there on uh, Facebook. And I said, whoever wants to come, come on down. And within the first two batches, I realized, oh, here's a problem. There don't seem to be enough professional actors in this country to sustain this school. Right. And I realized within the first two batches of students that while there were professional actors or aspiring professionals, the bulk of that community were what I now term creative double lifers. Mm -hmm. And to your listener who doesn't know what a creative double lifer is, it's someone who is in a PAP job, meaning parent approved profession. And uh, it's lawyers, doctors, bankers, something in tech, something in sales, something where everyone knows what you do. You pay taxes and you're a responsible citizen, but you feel dead on the inside. And so they had come to me with the express desire to pick up these creative skills so they could have a whole second life performing or creating work. Or they came to me with the idea to pick up skills from the creative arts to apply in their personal professional life. And I was like, huh, there seems to be something here. How can I repackage the work that I'm doing, recontextualize it, adjust it for the cultural norms and expectations so that it's more accessible to people here with that demand, because clearly the professional actors didn't have as strong a demand. Right, right. And making it accessible has certainly widened the scope of, you know, what who you can talk to and, and all that, because I know you work with corporate clients mm. as well mm. as people who actually physically come to your workshops. Mm. And when you work with these corporate clients, I mean, what are they looking for? Are they looking for that, that same creative outlet or are they looking for like better presentation skills or? It varies from person to person. Very often when it's the the one-on-one the -on -one C-suite client, what they're, they typically are coming to me with some sort of external problem. Like, oh, I don't know how to 
talk to my team or I'm finding that my pitching skills are not so great or mm-hmm. I'm now thrust in this position of leadership and I don't have the skill sets to do X, Y, Z. And seemingly they always start with something external and then I, I preface it by telling them what we do is not therapy. I will not be your therapist. But the reality is it's almost always some sort of internal wiring thing yeah. or presupposition or lack of permission that they put upon themselves that we have to unpack. So then we we rewire the internal stuff, but we also fix the external stuff. But we always do it through the lens of uh, theater and acting. Um, and then within the the group sort of setting, the, the lowest hanging fruit for most uh, companies tends to be the team building thing because not everybody wants to do a cooking class or African drumming or a paint jam or something. Yeah. But then they are also looking for, I don't like using the term soft skills because I think it really cheapens it, but like mm-hmm. the 21st century essential skills, mm-hmm. creativity, compassion, uh, critical thinking, communication. These are the things that artists have been doing since the dawn of time. And all I do is I examine these these skills through the lens of theater mm-hmm. with um, skills and exercises that make it accessible to them and palatable to them and contextualize it in a way that they go, oh, I thought I was coming to an acting class. Actually, what I'm really coming here for is, well, in a way, life. Yeah. And these skills extend beyond just my nine to five. They extend into the very essence of who I am. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like it's something that's applicable to so many different people when they are either looking for some type of creative expression or just wanting to learn to express themselves more authentically to mm. tell their story. Mm. So I think that's it's amazing that you're able to do so much. 10,000 students is a lot, by the way. Oh, thank you. <laughs> is it more than any other in Singapore? Must mm. be. Um, up till now, we're the only one in Singapore. Yeah. So I guess, yeah. Very cool. So I wanted to ask you one thing because there, there's one of all the nuggets that you shared when you talk about method acting and the Hawk method specifically. Mm. There was one phrase that I, I now hold very close and I think about it a lot when you said mm. it's a, a lot about making choices. Mm. And you said there are no right or wrong choices, only boring ones. Mm. Tell us more about that. Here's what I'm going to do is I'm actually curious since you've been thinking about it a lot. I want to know where you were with that phrase and where you are now with that phrase. I think when, when I was in the context of that workshop, Mm. um, when you, when I think you reiterated that point, it was me thinking, am I doing this right? Mm. Like, I, I don't really know acting. Does this look Okay. Does this come across? How does this come across? And I think in that moment, I was thinking, okay, there is no right and wrong. Mm. It's just how the audience perceives what I am putting out there. And so don't make it boring because people want to see authenticity. They want to see something that's real. Mm. But I have no control actually over how they perceive it because that's the other part of the transaction Mm. is you put something out there the exact same thing one person is going to respond very positively to another person will be like meh mm-hmm. because it just doesn't resonate with mm-hmm. them mm-hmm. so in that moment i was thinking a lot about that but now further down the line like a year later i still think about this quote because starting my own business it, I, i'm in kind of virgin territory again with my career mm-hmm. and i have to keep reminding myself am i doing things the right way well maybe it doesn't matter if i'm doing things the right way but don't be boring. Mm. Like be authentically yourself. Mm. If you're describing what your offer is, if you're talking to a potential client, just go all the way there with it. Don't be like, well, I could do this. I might be, you know, just be like, this is what I do. You know, you don't have to feel like an imposter. Cause Mm. I think that's something that I've kind of um, had a bit of in starting my own business. Am Mm. I just, or why are people going to pay me for this? Mm. Mm. Um, But I think that now that quote, still resonates with me for different reasons, Mm. not specifically around acting, but Mm -hmm. about the choices I make in life. Hence why maybe the name of your podcast? Yes. Mm. Influenced. (laughs) One of the influences. Um, Where it comes from for me is the idea that you're right. I mean, like one man's treasure is another man's trash, right? Uh, And so, you know, art is so subjective and 
it really is not good or bad. It's just what, what's appropriate or inappropriate. Um, and then the mortal sin of any artist is to have the audience leave that transaction going, eh, what's for lunch, right? Because then you just bored them to death. Or worse still, if they've literally fallen asleep in that theater. And, and so even if you do something so unapologetically you and it offends someone, at least they have felt something. Yeah. Right? And so the, the, the goal is to ensure that the audience is thinking about something and is feeling about something and not in a way that is spoon-fed to them. Because mm-hmm. I think also, I mean, this is a bit of a segue, um, we're in a habit, I guess, in Singapore to spoon-feed people what they're supposed to think and feel. Mm-hmm. And I think there there is some merit to that, especially if you haven't had the ability to think and feel for whatever safety reasons you have in your life. However, there is as much, if not more, merit in saying, you know, what do you really think about this? What do you really feel about this? And it's totally okay that you have these thoughts and feelings. And they're, they're not wrong. They're not bad. They're not um, boring. Um, they're, they're you. And, and whether it's in the context of putting out something that's creative or just in your daily life, anytime someone exits a transaction with you, the hope or the intention is, is that they'll want to come back again because they felt something, that they, that they, they had a thought that they didn't think before. Or they 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 now have the permission because you've shined a light on something to see the same issue from a different angle. Something, anything, rather than nothing. Just don't be boring. Boredom is death. Yeah. 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 They say that you know people won't remember what you said; they'll remember how you make mm, them feel. Mm, mm. And that sounds like what you're talking about. Absolutely. So, I'm going to ask you to finish a sentence. The world would benefit from more. What, in your opinion, Kamran? The world would benefit from more from more failure magic. Hmm. What's that? Failure magic is spaces and means to be able to to risk, to explore, to try, and not have to suffer consequences of embarrassment, shame, disappointment because uh, you've let someone else down, um, spaces and places and means to allow yourself to have the ability to explore the quantity that needs to come from experimentation before you find the quality, knowing that you have the time and the space and the bandwidth and the resources to allow that quantity to happen mm-hmm. um, where people go like, good for you that you're trying the 17,000th time because you're going to get it the next time around. And even if you don't, we're still going to be able to support you. And um, I think it's it's a disease that we have in Singapore that we we don't celebrate failure. And on the one hand, we pride ourselves on like this first world nation of innovation and blah, 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 blah. But all the platitudes mean nothing if on the ground level, that person doesn't even feel that they can speak their own mind without being punished or they can't have a thought or they can't even be their actual identity or gender or whatever it may be without some level of um, consequence. And I think the, uh, again, you expand the conversation beyond the creative arts into just life. Can we simply allow the magic of failure to happen knowing that something is going to come out of it if we just have patience? Yeah. Yeah. It's quite profound and you're right. It's not, exclusive to the creative arts, but it seems like allowing children, adults, uh, people to, like you said, fail, Mm. try again and be supported, Mm. not judged. Mm. In Singapore, I mean, the school system here has always traditionally been around scores and Mm. exams and everything, and that's changing. Mm. Uh, But there are still lots of pressures here. I mean, like I said, I've been here for 11 years now, so and I would like to stay, just to clarify for anyone listening. Uh, my, kid, my kids go to local school here, so it is interesting as a parent of children in a Singaporean school, mm. the difference between my education back in the U.S. Mm. when I was growing up mm. and the one that's expected of them here, mm. even though things have changed. Mm. I would say it's still, still quite um, merit, uh, merit and exam-based mm. as well. Mm. Yeah. So there's a lot of pressure. Thank you for that. 
And I, I will definitely link, you know, to HCAC in the podcast notes for anyone who is interested and in Singapore to actually participate in some of the programs or attend one of the shows. You also direct shows. Mm. You have lots of projects going on. Is there anything coming up that you have planned and you want to talk a little bit about? Uh, sure. Yeah. I am in the middle of planning my first TEDx talk, which will happen in September. Lovely. Um, and my goal is to be able to share more about uh, my love for preparation and the importance of preparation and mm. uh, the moment before. Uh, what are we doing in the moment before and, and the the power and the potential of the moment before to determine what the moment is. Mm. That's something that's coming up. And uh, yeah, shows and workshops. My goal by the end of this year is to actually be back on stage. I will be in a one-man show at the end of the year. Lovely. Fantastic. The question I always like to ask my guests at the very end is, what would you like to be remembered for? I would like to be remembered for is being that person that helps turn on the light bulb just in the same way that Robin Williams said, Carpe diem. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Kamil, for being with me today. Thank you. Thank you for listening today. I hope this has been a useful investment of your time. If you feel inspired by this episode, please rate it and consider subscribing. I'm keen to know how it's impacted you. Now go out there and seize those moments.